Welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh. During Innovation Forum's recent Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Conference in London, I was delighted to get the chance to speak to some of the expert participants, reflecting on conversations from panel sessions at the event. Among the topics we discussed are the continued need for multi-stakeholder collaboration, conducting deep-dive research on suppliers, and ensuring due diligence is not just a box-ticking exercise. So coming up are Ray Lindsay from Clifford Chance, back of ours Fiona Wheatley, and Phil Bloomer from the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre. I'm joined by Ray Lindsay at Clifford Chance. We've just been talking about regulation. What for you are the most significant of all the issues in corporate human rights regulation at the moment? I think we're seeing quite a fast moving set of developments in this area. Um, Historically, there's been a focus on transparency and supply chains and reporting up on that, particularly in the forced labour space. I think what we're seeing now is a recognition that that has some benefits and it, it is intended to drive due diligence but that in order to accelerate change and the impacts through supply chains, mandatory measures may be beneficial. So in some jurisdictions now, mandatory human rights due diligence requirements being imposed on companies who will be required, well, in some jurisdictions they already are, but going forward we expect more to be required to have due diligence policies that are implemented so that they identify and then can address negative human rights impacts arising in their supply chains. So do you think we're going to see a significant rise in litigation as regulation tightens? As regulation tightens, I think we inevitably will. There will be some litigation just around trying to understand exactly what the requirements are and clarifying that. But to the extent that some measures will be imposing new forms of liability, then there will be litigation relating to that. Um, There will also, to the extent that there are due diligence obligations imposed, companies may face claims for failures in those due diligence exercises that may have impacts on third parties. Probably support evolving theories of liability against companies in relation to their supply chains that we already see under the usual types of claims involving the duty of care that's on companies in relation to those who are affected by their activities. And do you think there will be a corresponding flight from high risk regions? I mean, an obvious end game here is for companies to sort of avoid the regions of where there are higher risks. I think that might well be one of the unintended consequences of some of these measures. I think some of the good practices that have arisen on a voluntary basis within a lot of multinational companies has been aimed at grappling with some of the more problematic jurisdictions and the issues that arise in them in order to try and make a difference in the ground and have changes to, say, the labour conditions people in some of those regions, for example and also to grapple with some of the really serious issues that can arise in conflict-affected areas or work governance zones. To the extent that they will now be subject to scrutiny and be requirements that will require them to identify and then address impacts by mitigating or preventing them, and if they don't, then potentially having to be involved in remedy, then there may well be a perverse incentive actually to disengage from some of those higher-risk jurisdictions. Given that we're moving towards a more due diligence approach then. To what extent do you think that the risks from admitting human rights related failures remain? When is transparency not the best policy? I think that's just too big of a question. When you say admitting failures, I suppose it depends on whose failure it is. If you're admitting your own failure, then you might just walk into a liability trap in the sense of admitting that you have done something wrong for which you can be held to account. On the other hand, identifying things that you have identified Uh, in your supply chain may not actually engage any legal liability at all for a company and the question is though 
what are you expected to do or what would you be required through your due diligence measures to do in order to address that? So I really think it, you know, it's too difficult to come up with a black and white answer. In many cases now, companies will be required to report on some of these very issues. Under EU legislation, for example, there will be an expectation to disclose adverse impacts that have been found and what's being done to address those. So in some cases, there may just not be the leeway to not disclose some of the things that, that have been found. And all of these matters, clearly collaboration is very important and companies aren't increasingly wanting to collaborate. But of course, there are always competition laws in place that mean that collaboration has to be done carefully. What are the risks in this respect to the go for? Yeah, I'm not a competition lawyer, but this is certainly something that's very clear, clearly at the forefront of people's minds, not least because of some of the things that have been happening in the States recently with scrutiny on banks, for example, who have made net zero commitments and incorporating some of that into their lending strategies. What it involves in terms of coming up with those alliances and those objectives and then implementing them. As we all know, collaborative initiatives and sector-wide initiatives in the responsible sourcing space are really important in having mutual effective approaches, exchanging information, what is good practice. Anyone who's engaged in those kinds of discussions needs to take advice from their legal teams as to what's permissible and what isn't. And that tends to be how these things happen and people are quite aware of the limitations on them and when they might be overstepping the boundaries. And I know that the, you know, the EU, for example, is looking at whether there should be safe harbors or exemptions in the sustainability space to encourage those kinds of behaviours without the anti-competitive risks. I think, again, it's one of those areas that needs to be monitored and always do take advice and make sure that in those discussions you're aware of you know, where you might be overstepping the line. As ever, get some good advice. Probably <laughs> the best place we go. Guys, a good lawyer. Ray Lindsay, Dr. Jans, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm joined by Fiona Whitley from Backover. You've been talking today about looking at the road to responsible procurement. How have corporate attitudes to responsible procurement changed, do you think, over the past 10 years? If I'm really honest, I'm probably looking back over 20 years rather than just 10. Um, it's a bit of a mixed blessing having that kind of legacy. But the positive side is that the whole shape of the conversation has changed dramatically in that time. The most exciting bit is a real fundamental, which is that, you know, the whole awareness and recognition, everything's moved from, why do we need to do this? A kind of intrinsic, well, give me the business case, give me the profit motive, help me understand why I even need to think about this, into how. How do we deliver it? And there's no longer an option. It's increasingly, it's recognised just a licence to trade issue. It used to be as a marketing attribute, is how do we sell it, whether you know, to our customers. And that moves into a very different way of thinking in terms of the delivery as well. It takes it out of the competitive marketing, how does this differentiate us? into a much more collaborative way of thinking and acting, which I am so excited about. Anyone who knows anything about me will know that collaboration is what drives my heartbeat. How do then do we translate this positive change that you're talking about? How do we translate that into effective action? I mean, I think there's some basic principles around simplicity, make sure that people are quite clear on what they have to do consistency don't go chopping and changing all the time and actually transparency as well be transparent about what the expectation is within your own business as well as with suppliers but that's very much at the kind of functioning level and I suppose on the functioning side too there's also there's the governance internal governance and I always talk about there being kind of macro and a micro level of governance 
you have to have your procurement director, your senior leadership involved at a strategic conversation level around how we deliver these things and why they're important. But then that has to be passed down to the delivery arm um, in our business. That's the PLT, the procurement leadership team, the heads of buying, however you would use that language, who then have to look at, well, what, what is the shape of our supply chain? How do we understand all the different characteristics of our supply base? And people tend to just look at this in quite a mechanical way around, like, you know, what size are they, what do they give us, what volumes they give us, what countries are they sourcing from. But increasingly I've learned that you also need to understand the buying strategy and how they appear suppliers from a strategic perspective. And strategic suppliers is where the buttons need to be pressed. They are the suppliers that you want to have long-term relationships with. You don't want to be chopping and changing all the time. The ones on whom the core of your business success depends, who can give you reliable quality year in, year out, who have the ability to do risk management that you need done, who actually help support margins and good profitability. But not every supplier can be that. And there's also, you know, let's be really honest, there's tactical supply chain management. We are actually for materials that are widely available, not highly differentiated. There's lots of suppliers in the market. Then there is a need to be able to have flex around that supply chain. Sometimes that may be where the highest risk and Sometimes you have to make decisions as to how you filter out perhaps these suppliers, although that's always the last option. The positive focus is on your strategic suppliers. Beautiful what you just said. I mean, how do you ensure that when you're engaging with your suppliers, that that engagement is appropriate. I don't think there's any easy answer to that because that would depend on it being a degree of homogeneity that doesn't exist in real life. There's a tendency to look on who do we have greatest influence over, but there's also who do we depend on most. And what is the actual internal capacity of each supplier themselves? How sophisticated, how well resourced are they at managing these issues? You would have to have a very different conversation with a large global commodity supplier versus highly technical manufacturer of specialised ingredients versus, quite frankly, a lot of agents and distributors. I mean, we have a huge network of British produce suppliers and that comes through agents. They are not always uh, the most sophisticated and well-equipped by the nature of their job there. And they have really, really massive challenges because of the seasonality challenges and then moving around the globe a lot. They do astonishingly well. And they're the ones that you can also look to really understand how to utilise tools like SEDEX whether that's the registration, the commitment, the SAQ data, or whether it's the audits. And I think it's really important to differentiate SEDEX. It is not only just about its meta audits. It also has a lot of other highly valuable data. That's external conversations. Obviously, internal conversations very important too. When you're speaking with your colleagues, we've talked to you about already about speaking procurement's language. What does it mean for you to speak procurement's language? I mean, it was interesting because in the presentation earlier, there was a comment that procurement professionals tend to be quite solo, quite individualistic. Actually, we have a mantra in our business that procurement is not an individual activity. And part of the role of being a procurement professional is to make sure that all stakeholder needs are accounted for and met to the greatest extent. And I think our role within that conversation is to really understand primarily the procurement team's needs 
but also how they relate to their wider stakeholder world of suppliers and beyond. And I think there's a tendency to feel very constrained by everything comes down to price and margin. I'm not naive. A huge amount does come down to price and margin, but actually, unless you're in the most simplistic business, then actually it's best business value that you're looking for. Now that is about quality and consistency and reliability and shared values, shared understanding of what you're both trying to achieve. Even from a retailer perspective, when I used to work in the grocery retailers, there was always an underlying conversation about it actually doesn't do us any good to put suppliers out of business. And I certainly see that conversation continuing into my own business. Well, actually, it really comes back to collaboration, as you said earlier, doesn't it? It is a little bit of collaboration, developing these collaborative approaches to enable the road to responsible procurement to be one that uh, companies will go down. It's always a great pleasure to talk with you. Fina Wheatley from Barkerbird, thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you, Ian. That was an absolute pleasure. Look forward to seeing you at the next event. I'm joined by the Executive Director of the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre, Phil Bloomer, an old friend of Innovation Forum. Welcome, Phil. Thank you very much. We've been talking about the rise of due diligence regulation and its impact. What examples have you seen of due diligence done properly regarding human rights issues? What we've got to say, first of all, is that there is a large number of companies who really have barely begun, and they are enormously challenged. The good news is that this is not rocket science. And that there are leading companies that can be learned from very rapidly. So, for instance, some of the most important things to mention are firstly, just making sure there's real leadership from the top. If you've got the executive and the board on board, and you've also got people in there that are explicitly responsible for human rights and environmental due diligence, then that will transform the way in which middle management can really get on with it, because the values will cascade down through the organisation informing the purchasing practices, informing the treatment of workers in every element of the business. But without that, it's a Sisyphean task for middle managers to try and really change something as difficult as purchasing practice unless they've got backing from the top. So what are the pitfalls then that you've seen companies fall into? Some of the biggest pitfalls are believing that somehow we are already there because we've got social audits and we've got compliance statements. You know, I've got a filing cabinet filled with compliance statements. I may not know who's written them or who's signed them, but nevertheless, I can get away with it. And unfortunately, I think, you know, within three years, that filing cabinet will represent a massive legal risk to the company. If you approach this point of complying with the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, from a simple box-ticking exercise, you'll never be able to deal with it. And that's why we see, for instance, the fundamental importance of rights holder engagement, speaking with the organisations of people at the bottom of your supply chain, whether they're workers, indigenous nations, or community organisations. They know where the bodies are buried in the supply chain. They know where the risks and the dangers are, and therefore there's an opportunity there. But without that, you really don't have any visibility. Yeah. This came up with the session, didn't it, that we were involved in. This box ticking is not taking a due diligence approach. Due diligence means getting beyond the box ticking exercise. But you mentioned just now that from the top, leadership is essential. Are you seeing that happening in companies? Well, we are. Not enough by any means. You know, there's still basically clinical psychopaths all over the place. <laughs> but there are also a significant number. If you take the example, for instance, just of Unilever, you know, the CEO is responsible for human rights governance in that company. 
supported by the leadership executive. If you take Tulip Packard Enterprises, for instance, their responsibility for economic and social responsibility and human rights is held by the vice president for anti-corruption and responsibility. So you can see that in those enterprises, there is a very tight correlation. When we do the Know the Chain benchmark, and when we look at the new results out of corporate human rights benchmark, we can see straight away there's a very high correlation between senior leadership engagement and the actual human rights performance of the company. When you're talking with businesses, when you're thinking about how they can improve their approach, how do you explain to them the right stones to look under? I think the key aspect of this is, first of all, understanding what the UN guiding principles say. What they say, you've got to look at the salient human rights risks. You don't have to look at every human rights risk in your company. That's the great news. You have to look at the salient one, defined by the likelihood of that risk and the severity of that risk. We've just heard in the meeting today the importance, for instance, of MICA. MICA is a tiny part, but it's central because there's child and forced labour in that supply chain in India. And therefore, it's unavoidable that they have to engage with them. How do they engage in it? They don't do a compliance step. They don't go out and get a social audit done because they know that will not allow them to get down to the level of tier three, tier four of their suppliers where this abuse is happening. So they have to do the deep dive research to understand it and to then work out what are the ways in which they can work collectively as a group of companies. You know, this mic is used in car metallic paint as well as in cosmetics. And so how do they collectively start to deal with that supply chain and start to ensure that they begin to eliminate the risks of okay. child labour and forthward? Phil, it's been great to come to you as ever. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you very much. Do watch out for more reflections from this and other conferences in the coming weeks. But that's all for this time. Goodbye. Goodbye.